inspired by true events i'm heather and i'm joined by my husband brian hi how you doing and our daughter zoe hey what's up <laughs> we're the grays and we're your film fam today we're going to be talking about the true events that inspired the 1985 film the goonies wait guys how, how many is this our third spielberg movie oh this is a richard donner film isn't it spielberg may have so Spielberg produced this and wrote the story. So the director's Richard Yeah, Richard Donner directed it and it stars um Corey Feldman. Woo! Love of my life. Sean, Sean Astin. Josh Brolin? This was Josh Brolin's first ever. It was his like big screen debut. Oh wow. He's the one who's like in fucking Marvel movies now, right? He's yeah. Thanos. Thanos. <laughs> um <laughs> Also, Martha Plimpton. Oh yeah, she's so cute. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and the the woman the woman who is you know like won an Oscar the Mama Fratelli, Anne Ramsey. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the person who plays Data, his name is Jonathan Kwan. Very good cast. I agree that it's um it like it sits in this little niche for me along with what maybe it's just. The Corey Feldman niche. I was going to say Gremlins, Stand By Me. Um, and those are all just the Corey Feldman cinematic That's what we call it, but... the, the Corey Feldman niche. Well, yeah, and I mean, Chunk uh, refers to Gremlins mm -hmm. it's, in the movie. That is one of the trippiest oh. things. Oh, he doesn't. Wait, the, uh, the, the, the police guy. He's yeah. talking to a cop, and the cop says something like... Um, I think it's something like, oh, just like that time. Like the, you... like the prank about creatures that multiply when you throw water on them. So this is yeah. the same cop from, or or had at least heard about what happened in the movie Gremlins, which also has Corey Feldman in it, which is so <laughs> weird because that implies they exist in the same universe, but like, that's yeah. the same guy. Well, today I'm going to talk about the Fratellis which are the bad guy criminals and the Goonies. Specifically, I'm going to talk about the inspiration for a the archetype of like a criminal gang led by a mom and her adult sons. Oh, that's, because, that's an archetype? Well, have you what? ever seen a concept <laughs> of a criminal mom with a gang of and her adult sons? Oh, like in Shameless. Like in the UK, <laughs> Shameless. Yeah. Well, there's other there we ones, go. and they're based on a specific person. In a specific famous story, um, Kate Barker, also known as Ma Barker. So mm -hmm. for some reason, I feel like Zoe's not going to know as much about this because I guess she's one generation removed from all these things that I feel like our generation knows about, Brian, because we maybe had movies or something. But Well, I did not know about Ma Barker. But have you heard of John Dillinger? Yes, I have. I've heard of J.D. Salinger. Have you heard of <laughs> Babyface Nelson? Yes, no. he was uh, the guy that was in uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, the the yes, fictionalized version uh, of himself. Yeah. Have you heard of Pretty Boy Floyd? Um, no, but is that a good person to pick for my drag name? <laughs> Tell me I if he's done something so name. unforgivable I shouldn't pick him for my drag name. <laughs> well, how about Machine Gun Kelly as your yeah, drag isn't name? Yeah, is that a musician? Yeah. <laughs> no, honey. <laughs> 
Who so, the fuck is Machine Gun Kelly then? He's a gangster. No, American he- singer. It, there's a fa- there's a young <laughs> there's a young people's musician that oh. must be named after this other guy. I'm correct. You're correct. Okay. I am correct. So anyways, those and Bonnie and Clyde and Mob Barker, these are all um famous depression era criminals who went around with machine guns robbing banks. Okay? And Ma Barker and her gang were not necessarily as famous uh, in nowadays time, but they were very famous in their own time. In nowadays time. That's how I call it. The present. Imagine if in the Goonies, instead of all this like tunnel pirate stuff, they were just robbing a bank. Well, I mean, what they're doing, do you even know the crime they're committing? I don't know. It's probably like fraud or something, right? <laughs> well, they were printing $50 bills. They're pr- right. They have a printing press in right, the basement. They're printing fake money. Right, so that's what they're doing. So that is that's fraud. <laughs> well, and they also <laughs> murdered people. And they murdered people. Okay, so so this is the time of the depression. All those people, John Salinger, Bonnie and Clyde, Babyface Nelson, all that. Um, these were, like I said, criminals robbing banks with like Tommy guns. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover was running the FBI. The FBI was actually pretty new at this point. Hmm. And Hoover, have you heard of J. Edgar Hoover? Yeah, I know, Mr. Hooves. Okay, well, Hooves, he described <laughs> Ma Bob. Hooves described Ma Barker as the most vicious, dangerous, and resourceful criminal brain in the last decade. And she's a woman. I wow, think he said it? decade. I think <laughs> so. And he knows his stuff. Ma Barker and her sons, Herman, Lloyd, Fred, and Arthur. By the way, I have like great uncles whose names are Herman Lloyd Fred. I know they really just sound like just some normal guy names. Just just some guys. I mean, why wouldn't you expect them to have normal names cuz they started off just some guys. dude's name is Machine Gun they... Kelly. <laughs> Pretty boy Floyd and then there's fucking Herman over here. I mean, when you grow up with a name like that, what your your occupational like, options what? are limited. Mama's boy Herman, it's gonna Well there are there will be some more cool names. Um okay. but Doc, the youngest one, Arthur, he was called Doc Barker. Like so the they were considered dwarves. some of <laughs> some of the worst of these criminals because they didn't just rob banks, they went from kidnapping and then into murder. In fact, they kind of murdered early on. Um so let me back up just a little bit. Kate Barker, also known as Arizona Barker. So many names. Or Ari. She was born in Missouri, not Arizona. In 1873, and she married George Barker when she was 19. And she officially became a Ma the next year in 1893 with the birth of her eldest son, Herman. And then over the next eight years, she had Lloyd, Fred, and Arthur, who I don't know why they call him Doc. but So she had four boys. The FBI... Uh, described the boys as more or less illiterate and said that the Barkers paid no attention to their children's education. I, I always kind of felt like I, I just want one kid because I was an only child and I really enjoyed it. Um, but I could have just a lot of kids and then make them do stuff for me. And they'll call you Ma. But Ma! And have little to no education. <laughs> so... <laughs> They started committing crimes pretty early. Um, Herman was arrested for highway robbery after running over a child in a getaway car when he was like 16 or 17. So um, not the best driver is what we're Yeah. Hearing? Oh, boy. These guys are kind of a bumbling mess. You don't know that he was trying to miss the boy. <laughs> Maybe he was a very good driver. The crimes over the next few years just started to get more serious. Like I said, they started with stealing. They started stealing cars. 
then robbing banks and then like having shootouts with the police and then kidnapping and murder. So in 1927, uh, when Herman was, I guess, about 34, he sh- he's the oldest. The youngest brother at that time would have been 26. Lloyd? Okay. Um, Doc. Oh, gotcha. When Herman was 34, he shot a police officer after the robbery of bank bonds from the American National Bank. And in the getaway attempt, he crashed his car and was seriously wounded. And it looked like he was going to be caught by a motorcycle cop. So he shot and killed himself to avoid prosecution. Ah, he was like, you know, for the family, like I'm going to take a going to take an all for the family, you know. Um why because he didn't want to go to jail? Or he like he, he maybe he'd be like I would get the rest of my family arrested if they make me talk, so I won't. I don't I don't know because maybe it the wasn't next that year, <laughs> The next year, the, all three brothers ended up the three surviving brothers were in prison. Uh, uh Lloyd was in the federal penitentiary at Leavenworth for robbing the mail. Fred was in Kansas state mail prison. robbery. Yeah. Yeah. And that's federal. You yeah. Know, it's a federal more, crime. They have more funds to chase people on things like mail robbery and counterfeiting and stuff that, that rises to a, uh, an interstate crime. Right. Fred was in the Kansas state prison for robbing a bank and the youngest, Arthur doc Barker was in the Oklahoma state prison for killing a night watchman while trying to burgle a hospital. So they all got caught. They were all, yeah. And then the, her oldest son was dead. And the other three kids were all in different prisons. It, um, it makes me think of a, of, a, of a conversation in Shawshank Redemption where Andy Dufresne is like, maybe you should choose a different line of work because <laughs> you don't seem to very, be a very good burglar. Yeah, for real. Um, at this point, Ma Barker, she threw out her husband or he left. Um, the FBI claimed that George was not really a criminal and that he was just done with the whole situation and was like, our family's a mess. I'm out of here. Ma Barker was not done and she was totally and always invested in whatever her boys were doing and never like gave up on them except for in their whole life by letting them become criminals. But <laughs> as criminals, she did not give up on them. So for two years, while all her sons were in different prisons, Ma lived in, quote, miserable poverty in a dirt floor shack. She got a boyfriend named Arthur Dunlop and moved him in. And then in 1931, her middle son, Fred, was released from jail. And in jail, he had formed a partnership with an inmate named Alvin Creepy Carpus. Wait, his name is Creepy Carpus. That's his nickname is his oh. Alvin Creepy Carpus. Is he creepy wow. like he's just kind of into the occult or is he like he creeps on people? I don't what was know. He in maybe prison both. For? And is it Carpus as in the uh, the greens that you have at Passover? Or like um, carapace, you know? K A R P I S. No, it's more like car piss. Great. Car piss. <laughs> so together, Fred and Creepy Carpus, they formed the Barker Carpus Gang, is what oh, it was called. So <laughs> now that I'm thinking Carpus, just, oh. So the, this Barker Carpus Gang was the main gang, and over the years, uh, the other Barker, Barker brothers, Ma Barker, her boyfriend, Arthur Dunlop, and like 20 other criminals at different times in and out were all part of this gang. I'll tell you what they did. In the beginning, they mostly robbed 
people and banks and like multiple banks when I go through the list of all their crimes it's like rob this bank shot a police officer rob this bank shot a sheriff rob this bank like you know they were robbing banks the deputy yeah (laughs) they did not Um, just the sheriff as they were robbing the banks like always the police seemed to come and then they would all have shootouts and then some people would get shot um they should start so, choosing places that aren't going to just immediately get the cops called on them. It turns out the places where they keep the money are also <laughs> the places where they call the cops if anything tries to take the money. So the same year that Fred and Alvin Carpus got out of prison, they killed a sheriff. <laughs> and they had to flee Missouri and they brought Ma with them. And there was a $100 wanted poster for Ma calling her old lady Ari Barker and naming her as an accomplice. So the gang decided to go to Chicago, but that's where Al Capone was. And they're like, we can't really deal with Al Capone. So now we're going to go to St. Paul, Minnesota, because, you know, that was apparently. Because that's a cool place to hang out. That actually, in the, at the time, it had a reputation for a place to go if you were a wanted criminal, because the police chief was corrupt. St. Paul, Minnesota. All right. It's... It's the Cayman Islands of bank robbers. The this sheriff, this corrupt sheriff, his name was Big Tom. Everyone has a fucking nickname back then. <laughs> it's the 30s. Big Tom Brown was corrupt, and he actually worked with the criminals, and he worked with the Al, the um, Barker Carpus gang and helped them move from bank robbery, which was getting more dangerous because, you know, like everyone was trying to go around and rob banks, and so the cops were always on it to kidnapping and he big tom was in charge of the kidnapping squad so he knew that they wouldn't get caught like he would try to help them not get caught um i assume this is a racket where like big tom would they'd give him some of the ransom and then he wouldn't work too hard on the case and would tip them off or whatever so ma's boyfriend arthur dunlop was a drunk and a talkative drunk and alvin carpus creepy And other members of the gang, they wanted to get rid of him. And one of their hideouts in St. Paul, um, the son of the landlord recognized the gang members from their mugshots, which were printed in a true detective magazine. So that was a magazine that I guess would be like, here's the criminals of the day. (laughs) Is that what true detective is named after? Yeah, it is. Cool. So the boy called it in and, you know, like, oh, I see the members of this gang. They're staying in my mom's uh, house that she's renting out and chief big tom brown he tipped them off saying like okay well you've been you've been seen so you got to get out of here but i guess he didn't tell them that like it was a boy who saw it from a magazine he just said like the cops know that you're there you got to go and they all thought it was ma's boyfriend dunlop and so they shot him while they were fleeing and oh man well, and so threw that's in the a road. really good test of like her loyalties. Did Ma forgive them for that, or was she more? I mean, loyal she to stayed her kids with them. Ex? Man, which she definitely was with her kids. Yeah. Well, so again, Fred and Barker, the middle son of the sons that are left, um, he and Alvin were the the leaders of the gang, but also maybe Ma was. So Ma and Fred um, were staying in hotels and hideouts in Washington and they're putting Moss sometimes in hotels away from the rest of the gang because apparently Ma did not like any of the girlfriends and would always try to break up their relationships. 
So this is like a quirky, like, meet the parents, but it's a whole mob fam- family. Yes. So then the gang came back to St. Paul and they tried to, and they kidnapped a wealthy businessman, William Ham of Ham's Brewery, at the time, the fifth largest brewery in the U.S. Wow. And they end up getting $100,000 in ransom for him, which is close to $2 million in today's money. Whoa. And then they kidnap Edward Bremer, the president of the Commercial State Bank, whose father is the owner of Schmidt Brewing Company. And he was kidnapped in broad daylight by Doc, the youngest. And they basically, like, drive his car off the road, pull him out of the car. Doc beats him with a gun, you know, like, pistol whips him to the point where he's all beat up and bloody. And, like, then they get back in his car and they don't know how to start his car. So they <laughs> have to wake him up and make him start his own car. Oh my God, you have to put the clutch down. <laughs> I was They've about only to driven say, automatics. I was about to say they seem much better at this than at robbing banks, and I immediately retract my statement. Yeah, no, they're they're this fools. Is real I think Fargo shit. Yeah, they, they put <laughs> for real, and they put like uh, goggles on him with like uh, blackouts on them or something so that he can't see. And they take him and they keep him out of place for a while, and they that goes awry too because like. Everyone hated this guy, and his father didn't really even like him that much, and it was really hard to get the money for him. But on the other hand, even though people didn't like him, he was somehow friends with FDR, the president, (laughs) and like he was known. And the president brought up this kidnapping in one of his fireside chats. That he—that's a thing that he used to have, Um, and with like he would chat over the radio to the U.S. and it was called a fireside chat. so now everybody's, I think everybody's definitely yeah. looking for this gang now because the president's upset about it. Right. So, but they, they get their money and then for him, they get $200,000, which is like almost $4 million. Wow. So then they go back to Chicago and they're trying to launder the money somehow. And the gang goes different places trying to launder the money. And Doc is found and arrested. And in his pocket, he has a map that indicates that some of the gang members are in Florida. And Oak just had a map of where they were. <laughs> well, it, it's a map that indicated it somewhere called Oklawaha, Florida. I mean, not, I mean, I'm from Florida and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Oklawaha. Okay. Never heard of it. So they also find a letter that was sent to doc about a local Oklahoma restaurant called Gator Joe's. So they're like, Wait, I'm sorry, it was called Gator Joe's. Yeah, and like, and it was about, and and the letter was like, this Gator has a taste for FBI agents, but doesn't want to eat gangsters. <laughs> I have so many thoughts. Number one, this truly is just like the comic childish ineptitude of the villains in the Goonies. Yeah. Like, they're like, idiots. They were not like, exaggerating. Yeah. But two, <laughs> that's just Florida Trader Joe's. <laughs> no, it's Joe's Crab Shack, but with an alligator. Like Florida Trader Joe's. That's good. Okay, so they go down to Oklahoma. <laughs> they find where they're staying. They find the hideout and they surround it. And, on, and this is January 16th, 1935. The FBI are not aware that Alvin Carpus, creepy Alvin, he had already left three days earlier 
and it was just Fred and Ma in the house. And the agents order them to surrender and then like nothing for 15 minutes. And then they yell for them to surrender again. And the cops heard someone in the house say, all right, go ahead. And the cops are like, oh, okay, I guess they're coming out. And then someone just starts shooting at the cops with a machine gun. And this firefight went on for four hours. <laughs> just two people in a house managed to have a gunfight with cops for four hours. So the FBI agents, they used tear gas bombs, rifles, and machine guns. And went on for so long that locals came and had picnics watching it from a safe distance. <laughs> this is real. The police... I feel like in four hours, the police could get continually restocked with ammunition, but the people in the house, did they just have all those bullets in the house Some ready to be loaded every shit. time? They did, but eventually, after four hours, the gunfire from the house stopped, and the FBI made the lo- a local handyman who worked on the house sometimes, they put a bulletproof vest on him and made him go in the house oh. to see if he was still alive. What? Canary in the coal mine. That's not nice. And the handyman no. was like, no, there's no one alive. So Fred and Ma were found in the front bedroom. Fred's body was riddled with bullets. Mom died from a, Ma died from a single bullet wound and had a Tommy gun in her hand. They also found two 45 caliber automatic pistols, two Thompson submachine guns, a 33 caliber Winchester rifle, a 380 caliber Colt automatic pistol, a Browning 12 gauge automatic shotgun, and a Remington 12-gauge pump shotgun. Dude. For just the two of them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> For just Ma and her son, they had a whole arsenal. And what did uh, what did J. Edgar Hoover say about this gang? Well, he said that Ma was the leader of it, <laughs> but Alvin was like, no, she was not the leader. She was just an accomplice, and she helped us look more respectable and like get a get around with things because she was like a mom (laughs) um and that hoover just lied and said she was a leader to to like make it seem okay that they shot an old lady i mean she had a tommy gun in her hand yeah wait so so creepy carpus was the only guy that got out of this okay so let me tell you more about him i have a couple (laughs) more points because his story is also good so, you know, the idea of like an underworld doctor that like a gang will have who could like sew up yeah. your bullet wounds and all that. Well, John Wick style. They had a kind of famous one named Joseph Morin, who also worked for John Dillinger's group. Like he's kind of another prototype of this concept because our ideas of, of gangsters and all that came from this time period. Joseph Morin was apparently killed by Fred Barker and Alvin Karpis after he botched a plastic surgery job on them to change their faces when they were on the run. Oh, that's so scary. That's hey, you so know, if, if the objective is to change your face, no surgery is botched. <laughs> what if you look just the same, but you just have like a mustache? <laughs> <laughs> is this just somehow a tie-in with, are we actually doing face-off tonight? And I've never... Never, shush. Okay, so, but he did manage to get rid of Alvin's fingerprints, which was another thing he, Alvin wanted him to do, so thoroughly that Alvin had a hard time ever getting a passport in life because he couldn't be fingerprinted because he just didn't uh-huh. have fingerprints ever again. That's as good as a fingerprint. You're the guy that doesn't have them. Yeah. So Alvin Karpis lived, and he was one of the only public enemies ever to be given the title public enemy number one. 
The others were John Dillinger, Pretty Boy Floyd, and Babyface Nelson, who were all killed before being captured. Carpus was captured, and he he is the man who spent the longest time as a federal prisoner in Alcatraz, 26 years. Wow. Um, He was caught in 1936 in New Orleans, and Hoover flew in to oversee the arrest. And they they caught him in his car because they knew where he was. And then they waited until, I guess, he got in his car, and then they, they came at him. And Hoover told his men, put the cuffs on him. But no agent brought any handcuffs. What? So they had to tie him up with their necktie. Wow. They tied him up with their necktie. So even the FBI were fucking bumbling at this point. Yeah. Everybody's a bumbler. Um, and his capture ended what's considered the Depression Air Criminal Wave or the Public Enemy Era. And near the end of his time serving in prison, in 1962, he met a young Charlie Manson and taught him to play guitar. I'm just going to go on record and say if I met Charles Manson, we're not on Charlie name basis. Um, If I met Charles Manson, I, in fact, would teach him wrong guitar chords on purpose. <laughs> Wait, you know, Charlie, I mean, Charles, he thought he was going to be like a rock star. That was one of his things. And that's why he got angry and like. Maybe some of the things he was doing are actually just revenge against not being given, like, um, the insider track into, like, being a rock star. Right. It wasn't that. Somebody taught him all the wrong chords. <laughs> so Arthur Baker, Doc, he was also sent to Alcatraz. And he was killed trying to escape Alcatraz. He had his associates, and they were often put in, like, whatever the version of solitary was because they were, caught, they were always fighting and stuff. And they sawed through four sets of prison bars, concealing the daily damage with makeshift putty. (laughs) And when they finally broke through, they climbed over the walls and in the night and made their way to the beach because Alcatraz is an island. And then they split up into pairs and two of them tried to swim out towards San Francisco, but they're pushed back by the tide. They couldn't do it. So then they tried to build a raft just from bits of wood lying around on the beach and tying it together with like their shirts. And they were trying to like, just let's make a raft out of this driftwood in our shirts because we can't, we can't uh, just swim. And that's when they were caught and the guard, the fog cleared and the guards found them and said like, throw your hands in the air. But they just kept trying to do what they were doing and trying to go. So they, they got shot. Well, Ma raised them with no education to be criminals (laughs) actively. Right. And this is kind of her story. And um, so the idea that a, Ma would be the leader of a gang or be okay with her sons behaving like this and helping them, you know, like caught the public imagination. Mm -hmm. So there's been a lot of movies about her. Uh, Ma, Barker's Killer Brood, Bloody Mama, Public Enemies, and lots of, she's also been portrayed in lots of TV shows like the old 1966 Batman series in Dick Tracy comics. Yeah, there was a whole character called Ma Barker and also in (laughs) DuckTales. The cartoon, I think her name is Ma Beaver. And there was even <laughs> an opera written about her. And heavy metal bands wrote songs about her. And then Lady Gaga sampled it for Poker Face. So she's actually, it's wow. like a really famous concept of like this, this bad mama who has these criminal sons. And she's actually their leader. And that is the Fatellis. Mama, mama, yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that's right. So that's my story, and now you Amazing. know that wow. those the Fratellis are yeah. The Fratellis are based on something. They're not significantly less effective at their job than the Barkers were. 
that's right which again is unfathomably bad um so what what do you have uh brian yeah what do i have what do you have uh let's see the stuff that i have can be summed up in one letter mm. Arr! Oh, <laughs> because i have pirates Ooh, pirates i love pirates yep Pirates feature prominently in the Goonies. Mm-hmm. There are no pirates in the Goonies, but for all that, they're a major character. One-Eyed Willie is a fully fleshed out character with a history and a backstory and a personality and a connection to Mikey. And in fact, in one version of the script, uh, somehow they, they uh, I don't know how they wrote it in, but... Uh, but One-Eyed Willie was asthmatic. And oh. the, line, the line from Mikey, like uh, something like, you're like me or something like that, uh, was somehow supposed to refer to that. But I don't know how they would have gotten that across because there's no inhalers. There's no, how, how, would you, how would you communicate that a, a skeleton had asthma? But yeah, in that, in that version, it was supposed to be like Mikey was meant to find this all along because he and One-Eyed Willie were like kindred spirits because they both had asthma. <laughs> Yeah. Well, maybe it was just supposed to be part of the story, like the lore. Yeah. Right. Or maybe he was called One Lung Willie originally. <laughs> One Lung Willie. <laughs> All right. Uh, so this is a kind of an interesting puzzle to uh, to piece together because uh, this takes place in Astoria, Oregon. Uh, up the west coast of the U.S., for those who don't know where Oregon is. It's I know North where Oregon California. is. I love that you assumed I met you. I'm just so bad at geography, but I do know where <laughs> Oregon is. Okay. Okay, okay. Um, the idea that there's buried pirate treasure in Oregon is not impossible. Ooh. Okay? There is a very slim chance that it could be possible. Um, and I'll take you there, but I'm going to start... Uh, I'm going to start back at the beginning of the European story, which starts with Christopher Columbus. Uh, He reached the Americas in 1492. Now, news that there was a landmass there in 1492, that gets back to Spain and Portugal. And Spain and Portugal are like, well, we both want it. It's ours. Um, And they can't decide uh, who should get what. So they go to the Pope and say, hey, Pope, we're all Catholics. Can you solve this for us so we don't have to go to war? Uh, And the Pope looks at the map, which is embarrassingly sparse uh, with respect to what has been found and having no idea of what is yet to be found. The Pope draws a longitudinal line, a north-south line, basically through the middle of what's been discovered and says Portugal gets everything east, Spain gets everything west of that line. I mean, a vestige of this agreement, which was finally ratified, really 1494, two years after Columbus, uh, the Treaty of Tordesillas, uh, it divided the Americas longitudinally along a line that was a little bit west of the Pope's line, a little bit more favorable to Portugal, um, which now that we know what land is there, it explains how Brazil speaks Portuguese. And everything else in South and Central America 
speak Spanish. All okay. of that land nobody knew about then, but Spain was in the position of having everything west of that line. Okay. It didn't really effectively extend to later on when England and and the, the, the Dutch and even the Scottish got interested in the New World and the northern parts of the New World, and, and Spain could not could not control all of those. Uh, but Portugal gets their little piece of Brazil. Spain has everything else. Uh, and that kind of drives this whole narrative. Uh, in 1513, Balboa and his men managed to cross overland across Panama and, uh, and reach the Pacific Ocean, proving that the ocean is there. We know where the East Coast is. We know where the West Coast is. Some things are now possible. And with the implications that some things are now possible, Magellan sets off finally to circumnavigate the globe. He's Portuguese, uh, and his trip takes, uh, it crosses years because it's around the globe, 1520 to 21. Um, so uh, think about these, uh, these, these times elapsing. Uh, 20, 30 years is all it takes for... Europeans to start going all the way around South America um, and getting to the Pacific Ocean. And it's only by luck that the land masses weren't created such that South America connects to Antarctica and uh, Magellan has to go like all the way around Antarctica just to get to the Pacific. No, there was a break there. And he didn't even have to go all the way around the Cape of uh, uh, Cape Horn. Uh, the Strait of Magellan... Um, is kind of a shortcut that he took, uh, so he didn't have to go all the way around. It, it becomes dotted islands down very far south, the south end of Chile, and he was able to get through without going all the way. He was like, man, there's um, this place called the Strait of Magellan made for me. Yep. That's where I'm going to go. <laughs> yeah. There were signs. What a cool coincidence. Know. He's like, I really should take this one. Um, but he's Portuguese. He does not go up the west coast of the Americas, uh, and, uh, and explore all of this land that's just going to go to Spain anyway, he continues on west across the Pacific to complete what Christopher Columbus wanted to do, which was reach Asia. Magellan crosses, he reaches Asia, he documents the route, and now this route across becomes a trade route driven by trade winds. Uh, so that now... What, what people can do is leave Europe, cross the Atlantic, go south, around, take the trade winds, go, go farther west, across the Pacific, get to Asia, do your trading. You can trade multiple times along the way. Trade, 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 west, west, west. You've gone all the way around the world, and you're richer than when you started. And this is how long-distance trade was done. It would take like you know two years to go around the globe. And you'd get investment, and you would uh, you would hopefully make some money doing all this trading. So, the Spanish hooked up with this, and they didn't just leave from the south end of of Chile and go kind of diagonally up and across the the Pacific. They would go up the coast and colonize many places along the way. And the biggest port of call was in Acapulco, hmm. and so the basic trade route would be the winds blowing from Acapulco to Manila in modern-day Philippines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was no way back. But those were, those were the, the big ports. 
until uh, Alonso de Ariano and Andres de Urdaneta in 1565 decided to go north in Asia from Manila up north, and eventually they find a latitude at which the winds blow east. And now you have a complete trade circuit. They're able to get back to Northern California, modern-day Northern California, uh, from uh, a more northern part in Asia. And now there's this big circuit so that goods can go two ways without having to go all the way around the earth. It's like a lazy river. Yes. Yes. Except it's a lazy river on which it, 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 you're there for a couple months each way and half the people die. Like a so lazy it's that river. kind of lazy river. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was treacherous, and it was made more treacherous uh, by having to go south along California. Thought you were gonna say pirates. <laughs> no, not yet. Um, uh, but you have to go south along California to get back down to Acapulco, and California is not good for sailing. The coast, at least, it is rocky. It's dotted with islands everywhere, and the, um, uh, the, the seafloor is unpredictably deep or shallow, and a lot of ships run aground. Um, they, they do learn to stay off the coast, but if you're off the coast, that means there's no safe harbor. You have to get all the way down to Acapulco. Just reaching the Americas isn't enough to be safe, and more people die because that's an extra, I don't know, an extra 800 miles that you have to travel before you're home. I didn't think that in this pirate story, the words Rocky and Balboa would come up. <laughs> the first time you said Balboa, I was going to make a Rocky joke, and I was like, no, stupid. And then you said Rocky. Now I want to make a Balboa joke, and then the time's passed. <laughs> wow. So the time has not passed. I, I made it anyways. And we appreciate it. You I, made it I work. Chuckle. Thank you. I appreciate you. Well, so Spain uh, owning you know, all of this land, these ports, and wanting to have it be an even more prosperous hub, they wanted safe harbors along California, and they wanted to chart it out. So uh, because this circuit only goes one way, it only goes clockwise, uh, they chartered uh, a couple of galleons, uh, the, the, the Manila galleons were the type of ships that they sent. Uh, two of these galleons, they said, okay, Go do your trading. And then on the way back, explore the coast of California for safe harbors and map it and get back to us. And those ships wrecked oh. because they went too close to the California shore. Because there's no safe uh, harbors in California. Yeah. <laughs> but um, Sebastian Vizcaino uh, had this idea that maybe the entire problem isn't the coastline. Maybe some of the problem is that these ships are only half staffed because half of them have died. The other half are starving and sick and deficient into all kinds of stuff. And what if we just launch an exploratory excursion from Acapulco and head north and forget about crossing the oceans and we'll look for safe harbors and we'll, we'll treat this as just its own excursion. A scouting and trip. Yeah, and they did that in 1602. They end up uh, roughly mapping the coast of California and finding some places. 
You know, so uh, now Spain has a firm grasp on this and the ships going around all the way around the West Coast of what is now the U.S., they're all Spanish and they're well-funded and they're doing trading and they're bringing back treasures from the Orient. So that's kind of the setting. Um, so what about pirates? What's the deal? There weren't really pirates per se, not like there were in, in the Caribbean and the Atl Atlantic Ocean, uh, being kind of self-sufficient, uh, self-starter private enterprises that go and steal and hijack ships and, and people and stuff. Uh, on the cool. West Coast, on the West Coast, what we had were privateers. Uh, also cool. Yeah. And privateers were chartered by a country to harass and steal from ships by a ship, ships that were owned by another country. Right. Uh, so in 1577, England sends Sir Francis Drake and a group of ships out of England on a uh, primary purpose to circumnavigate the globe and start England along the gravy train of circumnavigated trade routes because uh, they can't they can't do this uh, Pacific Circuit trade route, but they can do like Magellan, like the Portuguese. Uh, so he sets off with a few ships. Uh, they have a rough start. As soon as they set out, bad weather damages them. They return to Plymouth, repair, and set out again. Then they have Wait, did you say how... So they're, they're leaving from where? From Plymouth, England. Okay. So they had a rough start. They had to return and start again. Uh, and if they had a rough start, they had a rougher middle. <laughs> um, huge attrition just crossing the Atlantic. Lots of them dead. They end up scuttling two ships on purpose uh, to consolidate crew because they didn't have enough to crew all their ships. They got to Argentina. Sir Francis Drake immediately executes co-commander Thomas Doughty for witchcraft and treason in the form of mutiny. Um, oh, wait. You couldn't just execute him for mutiny? You had to say witchcraft also? Witchcraft and treason. He was accused of witchcraft. He was executed for treason. I guess witchcraft was big. Yeah, but it seems that there was nothing real going on there. They quarreled a lot, and he just he wanted to get rid of him. It looks like there was nothing real to that. In fact, and he claimed that he had uh, a special dispensation from the queen to be able to carry out judgment en route, uh, but he never provide proof, provided proof of this. Uh, so instead of holding on to Doughty and, and taking him back to England for trial, he tried him there. He was judge, jury, and assigned somebody to be executioner. And Doughty got his head chopped off. The man who uh, passes the sentence should swing the sword. <laughs> I don't think that's Sir Francis Drake. Another thing that happened at that same place, right after they uh, kill this guy, they have to destroy another ship uh, because it has rotting timbers and it's it's uh, mm. fallen apart. So they're Life down seems another hard. ship. Yep. So now they're down to three ships left. And they go south around the Cape, and they take the Strait of Magellan. A storm comes up, destroys one of the ships. Man. Another one of the ships says, fuck this. They turn around and go back to England. Leaving... Oh, so they're really just... It's a terrible trip. Cowards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the only ship left is the Pelican, Drake's flagship. Um, 
And they do make it around the Cape and they head north and now they're in Spanish territory. Uh, they get as far north as Peru and run into a Spanish ship and they capture it. Um, uh, like I said, the primary purpose of this excursion was to establish this trade route uh, for England. Uh, secondary purpose was to harass Spanish ships and maybe take some land from the Spanish, claim it for England. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, in Peru, they, they, they capture a Spanish ship with uh, 25,000 pesos of Peruvian gold, which would be worth in today's money about $10 million. Wow. Yeah. Um, and from, from probably torturing the people on the captured ship, they get news of another ship that has already left, but pretty recently headed west to Manila across the Pacific. So they catch up to that ship and they capture that ship and uh, get a whole lot of treasure off it. Uh, 36 kilos of gold, golden crucifix, jewels, 13 chests full of royals of plate, and 26,000 kilograms of silver. Wow. Um, huge treasure. Just the gold would be worth 1.8 million in today's money. And, and that was a minority of the, of the take. Wow. Um, he seemed to be relatively generous with the captives of that ship and maybe the remaining captives of the first one. Uh, gave them each uh, uh, gifts appropriate to their rank. Um, and gave everyone a letter of safe conduct uh, so that they could make it home safely. Um, so he continues northward, uh, all around the Spanish coasts, um, decides to uh, kind of uh, veer wide around Acapulco, goes a couple hundred miles out west from the coast, over the horizon, nowhere near Acapulco, and, uh, and, and kind of it kind of stays out of the Spanish hair in the uh, the most in the busiest part. Skips over that and goes up into California, uh, as far north uh, as uh, what is now South Cove uh, in uh, Cape Arago, just south of uh, Coos Bay in Oregon. Oh, okay. Yep. So he makes it all the way up into Oregon and then sails south from there, searching for a harbor so that he can repair his ship. So he goes farther away, he's farther away from the coast all the way up north and then turns around and heads back south. Yes. Okay. Yes, yeah, so he figures this is as far north as we need to go. Let's go to the coast and then try to find a, uh, a good harbor. Uh, so from there he sails south to find that harbor and finally finds one very close to uh, modern-day San Francisco. Just above the inlet to the bay is a place uh, called Drake's Bay, uh, northwest of San Francisco. Uh, is in it a by Alcatraz? Episode. Well, Alcatraz <laughs> is in the bay. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this is outside the bay on the ocean. And uh, I talked about in, uh, in one of our Fast and Furious episodes, when I used to go north of San Francisco uh, and take the first exit west uh, to Mount Tam, Mount, Mount uh, Tamalpay. Uh, and in that drive, uh, you know, that, that goes to like Stinson Beach and, uh, and, and, and Drake's Bay. Wow, and we went so, to Stinson Beach. Did we? That's where we went when, when we dropped Zoe off at summer camp one time. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, yeah, so Drake's Bay is just a little bit northwest of there. Okay. And that is 
to the best of historians' estimates, uh, the most likely place where he found a nice bay, a nice harbor to fix his ship. And he stayed there, and they, you know, they got healthy, they got clean water, they went hunting and got food, and they restocked um, to be, you know, able to continue their journey, which still is uh, supposed to be a circumnavigation. Um, while ashore, he claimed the area for Queen Elizabeth I uh, as Nova Albion, or New Albion. Um, and to document and assert the claim, he posted an engraved plate of brass to claim sovereignty for Elizabeth and every successive English monarch. That's really uh, just how they thought it worked. You could just kind of like walk around, find a place, be like, well, I packed it. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah but this, uh, this engraved plate of brass, I, I mean, it's documented and described and it's, it's a part of history that this was put there. Uh, and so this is kind of a, uh, I mean, this could, this could be in a future Indiana Jones movie. This is like the Holy Grail of California archaeology. Yeah. If you were to find this, then no one's ever found you it? can make a name for yourself. Well, I'm going to get to that. I'm going to stop talking about that now. And I'm going to talk about stuff that's none of your beeswax. <laughs> oh. oh, go Turns for Turns out that it's somebody else's beeswax. Oh, is it actual bee? Is he going to talk about actual beeswax? You think? I am going to talk about literal beeswax. Wow! Wow! Arr! Arr! <laughs> uh, because uh, one of the biggest mysteries of uh, sunken ships is a ship that sank off the coast of Oregon around this time. Um, and when I say around this time, okay, I, I kind of need to explain that Sir Francis Drake. Uh, this was like 1578, okay? Um, the Goonies takes place, and by that I mean One-Eyed Willie's uh, <laughs> part of the Goonies takes place in 1642. Okay. So huge, huge gap of time there. And what I'm going to talk about, this beeswax wreck, uh, this is 1693. Now, in all of this time in between, English ships harassing Spanish ships and being privateers. That did not stop with Sir Francis Drake. It, it kept on going, but there's very little history and very few wrecks, in part due to just very little activity in general. Anyone who wants to participate in this, these ships, like I said, are spending months at sea. They're losing tons of crew. There's just not that many. Right. And it's not a great place to do it. Yeah. Go to so the Atlantic. Even, even if even if a quarter of the ships wreck, what are the odds they're going to wreck along the Oregon or California coast um, and that they're going to be carrying treasure and this and that and that? And, and so, you know, just the numbers are very small. So I am skipping all the way over. I'm skipping like a century from Drake to this one that I'm talking about here, which uh, was first written about, at least that we know of. History records the first reference to this from 1813 when fur trader Alexander Henry of Astoria noted that the, Astoria. Uh, the local Clatsop tribe had great quantities of beeswax to trade. And, um, and they, told, they told him that the beeswax had come from a shipwreck nearby. Uh, 
Chunks of beeswax continued to be discovered along the shoreline throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, leading to a lot of speculation about its origin. So they know shipwreck, and, and this stuff is kind of spread far and wide, but it's pretty traceable. I mean, the, the beeswax, teak timbers, and shards of Chinese porcelain have been found, uh, heavily suggesting that the wreck is a Spanish Manila galleon because they were made out of teak, and they did this route from China. Okay, yeah. Uh, the beeswax would have been used by Spanish churches for making candles. Much of it is actually stamped with Spanish shipping symbols, and the wings of bees found to be native to the Philippines have been found trapped inside the wax. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, so why so far north? That's a big mystery. Why would any of these ships be up in Oregon? Uh, were they disabled in a storm, drifted off course? Uh, nobody has an answer for that. The porcelain is very good at dating this to the late 17th century. Um, and in the period when this type of porcelain was being created, only two Manila galleons went missing during that period. Uh, the Santo Cristo de Burgos in 1693 and the San Francisco Xavier in 1705. A bit of evidence here that, that kind of made historians figure this out is that there's a lot of evidence of a tsunami in 1700. And the wide dispersal of the stuff from the ship makes it evident that the wreck was before the tsunami and the tsunami helped to disperse the stuff. So, okay, so we're talking about the Santo Cristo de Burgos in 1693 is probably the beeswax wreck. Cool. Uh, and now that it's been studied more, it, it uh, is thought to have occurred farther north close to uh, Niakani Mountain. Um, and Astoria is about 35 miles north of this. And it's inside a bay uh, that made out of the, the mouth of the Columbia River, where it, where it hits the ocean. Uh, and it would be a great port if ships were up this far. Um, so I'm thinking maybe some privateers knew of the harbor, and uh, it could be used as a base to harass Spanish galleons. It, it very much could fit into the story in the Goonies. Privateers, uh, or in the case of the Goonies, they said pirate. Uh, stole from the Spanish using Astoria as a safe harbor from which to launch their actions. They steal it. They know the area. They head back into the harbor, just like it says in the movie. But the, the Spanish chase them and trap them in a cave. Uh, I, I don't know. It's plausible. Yeah. And the timing worked. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to take our timeline forward a lot. Okay? So... If you remember the, uh, the Drake, the Sir Francis Drake plate that he yeah. left, yeah. Um, there was a contemporary account by Francis P Pretty, a member of Drake's party, uh, that uh, he left behind a plate of brass as a monument of our being there that claimed Her Majesty's and successor's right and title to that kingdom. Uh, the memoirs also say that the plate included the date of the landing, Drake's name, and the queen's portrait on a sixpence coin showing through a hole in the plate. So it's described, and it's part of history. In the 20th century, there was an organization called the Ancient and Honorable Order of E. Clampus Vitus. <laughs> now, this, this group what started... What does that mean? Uh, he oh, wait, who uh, clamps vital organs? I don't know. Uh, the, the name of the organization is, um, uh, it, it sounds like Latin. It's actually dog Latin. 
uh, which doesn't exist and it has no meaning. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, it was created prior to uh, prior to the Civil War. It's been around a long time, and uh, basically, it's dedicated to the preservation of the heritage of the American West, especially the history of the motherlode and gold mining regions, uh, the gold rush kind of stuff. It's, it's a historical society about the West. Uh, members call themselves clampers, uh, but they try not to take themselves too seriously. It's basically, it's about history and having a lot of fun. Uh, the motto of the order, credo quia absurdum, is generally interpreted as meaning I believe it because it is absurd. I like these guys. Yep. Yeah. They I'm erect kind of historical plaques. Uh, it's dedicated to the erection of historical plaques, the protection of widows and orphans, especially the widows, and having a grand time. <laughs> especially the widows. Especially yep. the Not widows. Not so much the orphans. Uh, <laughs> That's hilarious. So they and they like playing practical jokes on each other. Uh, Herbert Bolton uh, was very interested in the history of this plate of Sir Francis Drake's. He was a distinguished professor, professor of California history and director of the Bancroft Library at the University of California. He was, is, you know, he was really into this stuff. And an ECV, an E. Clampus Vitus leader named George Dane initiated a hoax intended for Herbert Bolton. He created a plate. He created a brass plate as described by um, uh, Francis Pretty. The, the Francis Pretty description. He made a plate that, was, uh, that, that fit that description so that Herbert Bolton could find it and be tricked into thinking it was the original plate. Wow. This is some tomfoolery. I, 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 no, it really is. So a lot of the ECV people get involved with making it as realistic as possible. They have metal workers. They have, they have people that, you know, that really put a lot of effort into Man. this. And they the plant gag. it. And, and they plant it to be found. Um, and it is found, but uh, it doesn't quite go the way they figure. <laughs> uh, so a chauffeur found it along the coast, while his employer and a friend, who are both members of the California Historical Society, were hunting. Uh, what a he crazy found random it he happenstance. It, he put it in the back of, a, of his car. Uh, a few weeks later, he's cleaning the car, and he finds it, and he's like, this piece of crap, whatever. And he throws it away on the side of the road <laughs> in a different part of Marin County. Oh, my God. Oh, no. Wow. Yeah. So, and, and, then, it, and then it's lost. And then it's, it's like, it's like the one ring, you know, it gets discarded, but eventually it is found again, that three years later in 1936, uh, Beryl oh Shin, a shop clerk finds it in the thirties. We're back around to the thirties, you guys. Yep. Uh, so, uh, Beryl Shin, uh, he showed it to a friend who was a Berkeley student, um, who suggested that he take the plate to Herbert Bolton. Uh, okay, so it finally gets so to the person it was made for. Yes, yes. And Herbert Bolton is uh, rightly excited about it. He thinks it may very well be real, and he takes it to 
um, uh, Alan Chickering, the president of the California Historical Society, and they buy the plate for $35,000, oh which is God. equivalent to uh, $63,000 so today. This so prank now, is getting hardcore. Yep. Is it, and yeah, it's this given, tomfoolery is a problem. Is this It's given to the still? university's library. <laughs> um, so Bolton, I guess didn't go to a meeting of the clampers and say, I found it, I found it. Um, he's kind of quiet at this point to the club, but he announced, he announces at a California Historical Society meeting in public. Oh no. In 1937, he says, one of the world's long lost historical treasures apparently has been found. The, authentic- the authenticity of the tablet seems to me beyond all reasonable doubt. Oh, that's mean uh, now. So now Bolton and Chickering have both publicly committed themselves, personally and professionally, and their institutions to the authenticity of the plate. Well, I mean, that's what they wanted, right? They wanted these guys to make fools of themselves. I don't no, think they, they wanted like... them to make this kind of fools. <laughs> I feel like they were friends with them and just wanted to do something funny, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it wasn't meant to, to go this far. Oh, um, take that long. They, they actually, on the, they, they painted on the back of it. They painted the letters ECV on the back in paint that you can only see under ultraviolet light. Okay. Um, so, you know, the news gets out. This thing has been found. Sir Francis Drake's plate has been found. And uh, the opinions roll in. Uh, people saying the spelling seemed modern. The plate read Queen Elizabeth and not the standard Elizabeth, by the grace of God, Queen of England, France, and Ireland, defender of the faith, uh, used modern forms of the and this with the letters TH instead of thorns. I've been there. I would have known yeah. better. And uh, <laughs> it seemed too uniform, and the patina was suspect. But all the objections had counter arguments, like examples of things from that time using whatever they were being accused of using. Nothing was conclusive. This reminds me uh, of uh, the Tom Stoppard play, Arcadia. It's like once you want something <laughs> to be real, you can find lots of ways of arguing that it must be. It's a good sure. point. Yeah. Uh, so the conspirators at this point <laughs> are continuing to conspire. They're talking amongst themselves like, what do we do? Yeah, how do you we fix this? You can't come forward at that point. Right, right. Uh, so they try oh, to tip up. Oh, Forge ahead. something else. What? Forge like... A letter from someone else from the past saying they made it and have that be found. <laughs> well, they definitely do, not these guys. They do try to tip off Bolton without actually coming forward. Uh, they made a spoof plate to show that, the modern, that modern tools could be used to make the same thing. They published a spoof letter from the Consolidated Brass and Novelty Company offering a special line of brass plates guaranteed to make your hometown famous. <laughs> they, uh, they produced a small press run of a book, uh, Ye Preposterous Book of Brass, How? detailing problems with the metal content, wording, and spelling. How uh, the much book money even instructed did they the- sink into this prank? Because at I this point, it. they're still, they're just publishing stuff. They're like writing, they're writing books, books to like not have to <laughs> deal with what they did. Yeah, and the book- <laughs> The book even instructs the reader to look for ECV in fluorescent paint on the back and stated outright, we should now reclaim the plate as the rightful property of our ancient order, meaning ECV. Mm-hmm. So they've tried to put this out there, but 
Bolton and Chickering dug in and continued to defend the plate. Um, and at what point is it on them? They send it off to uh, Professor Colin Fink, chair of the Division of Electrochemistry of Columbia University, to uh, check on the brass. Um, and he confirmed the plate is genuine in no uncertain terms. <laughs> it is our opinion that the brass plate examined by us is the genuine Drake plate. Wow. And that's it. That's the definitive statement. Um, photos of the plate start to appear in textbooks. Copies are sold as souvenirs. And that, that is, is crazy. history. Uh, I mean, on, on several ceremonial occasions, copies of the plate were presented to Queen Elizabeth II. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, then, then you just have to be like, I feel you can like never, I never ever say is, in your it's life. It's the right plate. It's a real plate. Yep. <laughs> they found it. But keep in mind, we are here talking about it. Why are we here talking about <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah. How'd they find um, out? So in the early 70s, science caught up okay. with the plate. Um, in preparation for the 400th anniversary of Drake's landing, they retested the plate. Uh, X-ray diffraction and gamma ray absorption tests revealed the plate to be too smooth, made by modern rolling equipment and not hammered flat by a 16th century hammer. Um, they actually tried. They used a hammer. They, they, they took uh, metal that had been rolled flat, used a hammer to give it tool marks, but they found in between the tool marks were areas, corners of flat that couldn't have existed wow. if it, it were only the tools. Uh, neutron activation analysis uh, studied the plate, found that it contained too much zinc and too few impurities to be Elizabethan English brass. Okay, wait, what about they just shined a fluorescent light on it? <laughs> they didn't have to do all that shit. <laughs> yeah, I have to think that maybe that paint had worn off. Okay. Uh, even just being buried in the ground for three years, it may have taken the paint off. Uh, that could be a, a red herring there. Uh, but it did. It, it contained trace metals that corresponded to modern American brass. Uh, mm. And then they examined the plate under a stereo microscope and found the edges to be consistent with modern cutting equipment. Uh, and so this retesting in the 70s uh, showed that this was a fake. And they figure out who did it. Well, I don't have the name on this, but somebody wrote a book and they researched the book and all these people were dead. Right. Uh, the, the, the people from, uh, Herbert was from dead. ECV, they were all dead. Uh, and Bolton, Bolton was dead too. This was all after that. But before these people died, they had left fragments of the story. They had told people okay. and somebody did the legwork of contacting family and friends and wow. really chasing the story down and putting together all the different stories to That's make up what I've told you. Yeah. That's And awesome. that is maybe the, <laughs> maybe the widest believed hoax uh, in, I don't know, in California. I love history. that. That's great. That's I love that story. these guys were just trying to do something fun for their, the person who's also in their group and it just totally went awry. Yeah. And I looked it up and the group still exists. They still do uh, history of the West. Uh, and you know, when, when we retire, when we move back to California, uh, I've been researching this for all of like three days. So I don't want to say 
anything that's going to get me in trouble because maybe they're bastards. Because <laughs> anytime you talk about a group of people, sometimes they're bastards. Okay. But <laughs> what if they're not? What if we want to join? They started up the group. Uh, the founder started up the group because he was not happy with the exclusivity of hoity-toity groups like the uh, the Masons and other really exclusive groups. And he wanted a group that anyone was allowed to join. And it seems like right from the start, which is, which is 19th century, uh, they were open to women. They were open to people of all races. Uh, it seems like maybe they're not bastards, but I have to look deeper into it. I mean, but I'm you want to- I'm a bastard, literally. <laughs> You'd like to join them is what I'm hearing. I, I would not mind being in a group who's- uh, who's raison who loves widows is, so much and, is, and orphans uh, somewhat widows and orphans, but especially widows, <laughs> uh, uh, the history of the West and having a good time. Yeah. On that's the surface, really cool. It sounds cool. Speaking of having cool. a good time. <laughs> are we on the good my segue. segment? Good segue. We are. You, you segued like a pro right there. Um, I have a little game, which I'd like to call, 20 answers. Uh, uh, <laughs> your categories are person, place, thing, or uh, just some cool trivia. Okay. Hit me. Thing. Amazing. Let's talk about props. So the map, the map to One I Willie's Treasure, we're back on the good news now, by the way. Um, the map was... Uh, it it was cool. It looked old, but this production designer who's working on it by the name of J. Michael Riva, he was like, it doesn't look like weathered enough. So he took it home and he put some old coffee stains on it. Um, and he he tried to he tried to old it up. Um, and supposedly he said that he used his own blood to do so as well. Wow. Um, and then after rubbing some blood on it. For real. And then after filming, Sean Astin was allowed to keep it. And so he took it home. And then oh, man. years later, his mom, Patty Duke, found it and threw it out because she thought it was just no. some paper. <laughs> Aw, Patty. <laughs> That's so sad. Um, also crumpled up paper were the bats. Um, the way that they did the bats underground was they just... Uh, crumpled up like some black pieces of paper maybe some they had just like bow ties just like some random stuff and they and they shot it out of an air cannon and they were like great bats um <laughs> i like that that works i'm gonna look uh, at it harder when next time i watch it slightly more it's authentic. on tv all the time right now it is slightly more authentic was one-eyed willie's skull which was made from real bone an actual skull? or They found a skull bone? with it, no eye? It just said made from real bone. It, it, it okay. didn't say it was a real person's skull. I, <laughs> but I don't know how you shape bone. I to mean, be a whole skull. Is it cheating if you pulverize the bone and mix it with clay and then just form it? Because then it's really clay. No, I think that's still really metal. Clay. <laughs> <laughs> um, another amazing prop that I would have kept and taken care of but did not get the chance to well not quite a prop the the inferno the ship 
um it was real it was 105 feet long like they built out this whole thing um it was Whoa. modeled after errol flynn's ship in the seahawk from 1940 um wait did they they didn't just make the right side of the ship as a facade they, that made, you see? The they made the whole ship and it floated the whole ship and they said that after filming like they were like anyone can take this and no one wanted it <laughs> who could take it where show? would they put it I would have taken it. Instead, what happened is that no one wanted it, so they scrapped it. Aww. Okay, wait. What does that mean? You would have taken it. Okay. Where would you they, would have okay. taken so it? So you're in the you're, bay. You're, you're in that. You're on the 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 cast. Okay. You're yeah. one of the kids, and you say, "Okay, I'll take it." And they say, "Great, it's yours. Take it." What do you do now? Well, I sail it over to our house in the Channel Islands, and I just kind of <laughs> dock it in the harbor. A hundred five foot. Yeah, maybe I'll rent a place in the bay. I'll, I'll start selling tours of One Eye Willie's ship. Come on, mm. like live a little. Don't let live it be a little, scrapped. Brian. No, live a little. I refuse to live even a little. <laughs> Brian is like Patty Duke. He wants to take that ship, throw it away. And rip Patty it up. Duke. Um, what are you guys' thoughts on Errol Flynn? He's cool because he's piratey. I hear it's good to be in like him. It is. That is true. In well, like Flynn. apparently Donner thought he was fucking awesome because they modeled this whole ship after a ship from one of his movies from the Seahawk. The theme music is really based on the music from Adventures of Don Juan with Errol Flynn. And then also the movie that Sloth is watching is Captain Blood with Errol Flynn. Um, so there it's his favorite pirate of all time, I guess. Yeah, lots of Easter eggs, even like the part where he's on the rigging is like an Easter egg for an Errol Flynn movie. So, Donald yeah, had yeah. himself a man crush, total man um, crush. Uh, mom, person, place, or just some cool trivia for uh, 800? Person, person for 800. Um, Ooh, I'm gonna get 800 points. How many points did dad get? Uh, Seven, but in the uh, seven points, you guys have seven points, but in today's money, that would be about three million. Ooh, <laughs> wow. Um, well, yeah, so this was Josh Brolin's big screen debut, which is fun. Um, it was not Corey Feldman's, Corey Feldman was in Gremlins, um, but this was before The Lost Boys, where he met where he hung out, you know, with Corey Haim, and that was their first movie they did together, and then they did a ton together. But this was actually when they first met. Corey Haim auditioned for this movie and didn't get in, but he met Corey Feldman at auditions, and they became friends. Huh. And the start So Corey Haim wonderful... would have been probably the Mikey character. He might have been auditioning, unless he was auditioning for Mouth. I, I think he, he was auditioning for Mouth, and Corey Feldman beat yeah, him out for can... it. Corey Haim can be mouthy. Not as mouthy as Corey Feldman, <laughs> apparently, because you know that scene where he's holding all the jewels and, and the whole string of pearls in his mouth? Yeah, 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 yeah. That was one take real. He actually had all that in his mouth and just actually did that. I can't fathom. <laughs> I always felt like that must be some kind of magician's trick of like editing or right, something. just sleight of hand yeah but yeah. no he just i guess had a really big mouth like literally mouth. physically that's how that was the audition who could fit the most stuff in their mouth <laughs> Corey feldman oh, won weird <laughs> sorry yeah that's true <laughs> um 
Okay, well, there was a woman, um, Lupe Ontiveros is the woman who played Rosalita. You know, she was, you know, she could speak English. That was just the character. Um, but she actually ended up helping the script team, like, translate lines um, from, like, English and Spanish. And she was the one who, like, taught Corey Feldman how to even like learn and say the lines in Spanish because he didn't know how to speak Spanish at all. So she was which drawer the heroine goes in. Right. She was uh, a big part of that. Um, oh, that's cool. Whole bit. I really um, thought it was impressive how uh, how mouth uh, translated from the map in such a way that the English translation rhymed. rhymed. I know. I love that. It's pretty good. He's pretty I good love, at it. Remind me to tell a really funny relating anecdote after this <laughs> okay <laughs> i won't do it now while it relates i refuse i'm gonna do it later <laughs> um well another language thing you know what fratelli means no is it a kind of pasta it just means brothers in italian oh yeah like oh that makes okay. sense yeah yeah they're like uh what do we call the brothers the fucking brothers brothers it's like saying chai tea <laughs> <laughs> um do you know what else uh the director Donner directed. It's a movie that you guys like. 1970s Superman and some of Superman 2. Oh. Um, so when Sloth uh, rips open his shirt and there's a Superman t-shirt <laughs> underneath, yeah. that's like a, a call out to him. I think is sweet. Mom, you get 800 points. <laughs> Yay, thank you. Dad, you want to try again for a sure. chance to make up those other... Uh, 793 points. Do I get extra credit for reminding you to tell us an amusing anecdote that you skipped? Um, no. Uh, okay. It's not time yet. When it's time, you'll know it. Okay. I will take random trivia. Amazing. Random trivia. Um, have you guys seen the full version of this movie? Because sometimes they play it on cable, the version with the scenes that were cut out from the original release, which include a giant octopus. Attack. No, I've no, never, never seen the octopus. I've never yeah. seen the octopus version. There is an octopus version. There was an octopus, but I've never Wait, seen it. They I've seen post production on that? I yeah. It was fully from there were two scenes, uh one where they go to a stop and shop, um, and one where there's a full octopus attack that I've seen on YouTube. Um, and it's funny because at the end, I think Data says something about like, oh, and like we had to fight off octop like octopi yeah. or octopus. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, that you know, just didn't happen in the movie. Uh, but yeah, like, why is Data making up stuff? You've already had such a cool adventure, Data. <laughs> you don't have to make up that there were octopods. Um, well, in the Cindy Lauper uh, music video, the octopus is in it. The tentacles are around Cindy. Yeah. Something else that they were in were a song that was written for this movie <laughs> called Eight Arms to Hold You. That was a, <laughs> it was an octopus song and it got fully written and then they cut the octopus scene and like the song flopped and like wasn't in the, like the promotional materials because it, it just like seems so random have you heard this song does the song exist i have in the not world? in fact heard eight arms to hold you but now i kind of feel like i should oh, we're record it and cover it for the song at the end of this episode so 
You guys, as of when you're hearing this, you might be hearing right after this a really good rendition of Eight Arms to Hold You. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Another thing that was filmed uh, and then removed from the movie, which I kind of can see why, uh, is a part where um, when they're underground and they're banging on the pipes, there was a... (laughs) You can kind of laugh when I say... The octopus kind of makes sense, right? It's like, oh yeah, pirate adventure. Um, but this part, uh, uh, there's a version where they're banging on the pipes, makes some zoo animals escape from the zoo, and some gorillas come out of the zoo, steal Troy's car, and <laughs> and drive off in it. Okay, that's a all bit right. Much. Yeah, that's that's too much. <laughs> Calm it down, whoever wrote this. At least the the only um. Well, not the only, but the main, the car chase that was depicted in the movie, um, uh, the one that I think Chunk is watching on TV at the beginning. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's from Some yeah. Like It Hot, which we watched over quarantine yeah, and really liked. Yeah. And I don't remember yeah. there being a car chase in it, but I believe it. Well, I think at the very beginning, they're like in trouble with the mob or something, and the mob go right. by before they have to leave, and that's why they have to You're leave. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot there was a mob component to some like it hot. Yeah, then it kind of <laughs> changes, and it's just like a, a cute little, right, weird sex comedy. <laughs> <laughs> Two more fun little tidbits. Number one, um, as I think probably a lot of musicians picked up on, uh, but maybe not people who don't read sheet music. Um, in the part where she's playing the piano, she, she looks at the sheet music and like she can't always tell what the notes are, right? So she goes, I don't know if it's an A sharp or a B flat. And she's yeah. like nervous about what key to hit. And the thing that's funny about that is that A sharp and B flat are the same note. So there wasn't ever really an issue there of like, oh no, what if I mess up and I I hit the A sharp instead of the B flat? Like it doesn't matter whether they're writing it in flats or sharps. You're hitting this. Yeah. She would have been okay. Last, just some cool trivia that I think is quite cool. Uh, someone did the research based on like what day of the week they said it. Like they said it was a Saturday. Um, and like the most recent like newspaper that they showed was from uh like the 24th and they said that and that was from a thursday so they found out through you know basic sleuthery that the movie is set on saturday october 26th 1985 which is the day that the events of back to the future take place oh wow so somewhere across america (laughs) marty mcfly is having a grand old time well, I think wow. Marty McFly was in California, probably. Oh, at least yeah. Just Twin Pines Mall looks suspiciously across... like a mall I've seen in Southern California. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's true. So that is just some cool trivia. Well, um, thank you. That Do you have a funny about... anecdote that you want to share? Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, yeah, I'll share it now, and then I'll tell you about place. Um. My funny anecdote is that I do D&D and um, I DM a group, which means I write the stories for uh, all my players and we have a lot of one-offs. We had a whole pirate adventure thing and, and we were just coming back to land and I was like, you know what I think would be funny? 
The Goonies is such a good adventure script. It has so many like like rooms that each have like a a a trap or a puzzle or a like bats to fight or whatever and then there's yeah this whole like it makes bandit a good thing adventure so i i went and i read this is how i know some of the deleted scenes and everything i read got my hands on an like copy of the filming script um and i read through it and i took copious notes and i just changed Ba- only like the names like and and then made it set medieval like I literally had a part where it was like okay and then you go into the back of the the pub and there's a like I, I it couldn't have been a refrigerator because it is medieval times I was like a, a, a pantry closet oh no it has a dead crowns guard in it they never <laughs> found the fake printed money um but I truly just use puzzles from the Goonies, and I was like, I hope they don't figure out it's the Goonies too <laughs> early, or they will kind of know what is going to happen. But they didn't. It was it was I think right about the time when they uh, solved a puzzle and a water slide opened up, and they went down <laughs> the water slide. And and Olivia, who was on our podcast before, um, she's one of our players, and she just goes, "That's like." the Goonies and I go is it is it like the Goonies and then everyone's like uh, that was very fun because do they do they splash down next to a pirate ship um they did in fact I had to change a couple of the details you know but it was basically the same I had I had sloth but his name was glut short for in my mind (laughs) gluttony just a different deadly sin did they fight an octopus they fought a giant squid they did. Awesome. Um, speaking of water slides, in my last segment here, the water slide was a fully functioning actual water slide because apparently they just built lots of these uh, like real sets. <laughs> oh, and man. Allegedly, um, Donner and like some of the crew uh, like to sneak in after a wrap uh, on filming for the day and just go on the water slide. Yeah. Why waste that? I would totally do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, why waste a pirate ship? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Um, and here's a, here's a real inspired by true events moment. Um, Chris Columbus, who wrote the, uh, the screenplay, he grew up, it, it was almost set in Ohio, uh, because he grew up in Ohio in this factory town that had just like nothing to do. Um, and so during the summers, he would go and explore these abandoned coal mines. Um, and so that's where he like came Sounds up with safe. some of the ideas for for the Goonies. And he almost wanted to set it in Ohio, but instead he set it in Astoria, Oregon, which is good because Astoria loves the Goonies. They have a Goonies tour that you can go on. They've declared that June 7th is Goonies Day and the whole town has a celebration. I would love to go to Astoria on Goonies Day. Let's go on Goonies Um, Day. And uh, Keith Walker liked Astoria so much that it inspired his screenplay, Free Willy. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I think Free Willy 2 and Free Willy 3, they all are linked with Astoria, Oregon. I feel like it also really inspired Stranger Things. Oh, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's the whole Corey Feldman cinematic universe, right? <laughs> Wait, not Sean well, Astin? Well, Sean Astin. Oh, yeah, that too. Sean Astin's actually in it, yeah. 
Um, I thought that before we wrap up, um, we could all uh, take part in a little tradition that was cut from the movie, unfortunately, but was written, which is the Goonies Oath. Um, okay. The Goonies Oath goes, I will never betray my goondock friends. I will, I will never, never betray, betray my, my goondock, goondock friends. friends. We will stick together until the whole world ends. We, we will, will stick, stick together, together till the until whole the whole world, world ends. ends. Through heaven and hell and nuclear war. Through heaven and hell and nuclear war. Good pals like us will stick like tar. Good pals like us will stick like tar. In the city or country or the forest or the boonies. In the city or the country or the forest or the boonies. I am proudly declared one of the goonies. I am proudly, proudly declared, declared one of, the, one of goonies. the goonies. And now we're Yay. all goonies. Yay. You know I'm what? a goonie. You know what? I will even forgive that rhyme because there is precedent, though it's not an English song. Uh, hey, Langor. Uh, hey, Langor. Hey, Langor. Och den som inte hey, Langor. Han heller inte halvan for. Wow. You so just they, wanted to show off to our wrong. listeners that you know a lot of the lyrics of Swedish drinking song, Helongar. <laughs> I mean... We sing it at our coffee festival. It's a good song. Yep. Um, can we post to Twitter the horrible, horrible picture of me dressed up like brand um, when I when I acquired <laughs> a sweatband and I decided to go out on the town dressed like just one of fashion's worst nightmares in our charming little cobblestone town. <laughs> yes, yes, I will post that. So Zoe will have a song. Maybe it's an octopus song. Maybe not. We'll see. I might be singing Eight Arms to Hold You. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm proudly declared one of the Goonies. Like Film Fam, inspired by true events? Subscribe to hear more stories that inspired our favorite films. For photos and links from the show and other shenanigans, follow us on Instagram at Film Fam Podcast, on Twitter at Film Fam underscore podcast, and on Facebook at Film Fam, inspired by true events. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or films whose inspiration you'd like us to explore, you can email us at filmfampodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you all for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Eight arms to hold you near my heart. Say that we'll never drift apart. Eight arms to hold you near my heart. Your dreams can come true right from the start.